along in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll be moving on to Isaiah 4, 2 to 6. So starting in Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The word that Judah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war or any more. O house, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honour of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for the life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstones of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thanks, Phil, for reading for us. Friends, it would be very helpful if you had your Bibles open near you. We're going to be going beyond the passages that are just uh, recorded, printed for us in the order of service. So having a Bible open near you will be very helpful. Just to um, correct a, a quick error that I spotted in the slides, the session meeting this afternoon is at 3.30, not at 7. So if you're praying for us, uh, before dinner would be nice, not after dinner. Um, and we certainly do need those prayers. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at this passage from God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that you'd open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Please prepare our hearts to accept your Word. Please silence in us any voice but yours. And that hearing, we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, on Friday night, the Olympic Games finally kicked off uh, in Tokyo. I wonder who else watched the opening ceremony of the Olympics? Nah, a few. I know. 2021, watching the Olympics. Great. You know, it was, I watched a bit of it. It was almost surreal to see, you know, all the, all the Olympic teams turning out in the stadium, in an empty stadium in the middle of Tokyo on Friday night, uh, you know, with all the upheaval we've seen in our world over the last 18 months. It was quite weird, actually, in many ways. Uh, the Olympic Games themselves, of course, they're built on the celebration of human skill and human strength and human achievement, and athletes from all over the world, they compete in these feats of, 
of, of, of speed and accuracy and power to see how great human beings can actually be. That's kind of what the Olympics is all about. Um, our own Dawn Fraser famously said, the Olympics remain the most compelling search for excellence that exists in sport and maybe in life itself. Now, I want to say there's nothing wrong with the Olympics. I think it's a great competition. But when life itself becomes obsessed with the search for human excellence, well, it's a sign that we might have got things a little bit out of kilter. And that obsession with human achievement is really what the passage in front of us is about today. <clears throat> Excuse me. You might not actually realize this, but the ancient Greek Olympic Games, the ones that our modern games take their inspiration from, they were actually well underway in ancient Greece by the time Isaiah was preaching in Jerusalem. This is the mid-8th century BC. But as, as the Greeks across the Mediterranean, as they were elevating human achievement as an act of worship to their gods, their false gods through sport, uh, the people of Judah, God's people, are actually not much different they were elevating human achievement in the place of the one true God and defying the Lord's glorious presence among his people, as we read in chapter 3, verse 8. Now, we, don't, we haven't had time to read the whole of chapters 2, 3, and 4 today, so we've just read the beginning of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4. And these two sections, they're a bit like you know, bookends that give us this, this wonderful picture of God's plans for his people in his place under his rule. But in between, the end of chapter 2 and the whole of chapter 3 is this catalog of woe about Judah's blind faith in humanity and human achievement, which makes the glorious visions of chapter 2 and chapter 4 actually seem like they're a bit impossible. But God has a plan, a really big plan, and he's going to keep it. He's going to keep his promises despite his people's sin. And we're going to see this morning how he plans to do that. I'm going to look at this morning's passage under three headings. You've got them there in your service outline if you'd like to take notes or follow along. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, when we got into the beginning of chapter 2 that uh, Phil read for us earlier, it might have seemed like a huge surprise considering where we left off last week. Uh, we've got this great and glorious vision of what God is going to do on, you know, in his place with his people, but it's a far cry from the Jerusalem and Judah we read about last week who failed God in the political sphere, in the religious sphere, and the social sphere. Now, this is all very specifically targeted, remember, at Jerusalem and Judea. This is the southern kingdom of, uh, after the kingdom split in two. Jerusalem was the city of David. The temple was there. And, and more than anywhere else on earth at this time, this place symbolized God's rule uh, and, and the pattern of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing that we talked about last term. But we know from chapter 1 that not all is well in Jerusalem. They're left standing alone and exposed to that memorable phrase like a booth in a cucumber field. So like a, a temporary shelter that was used at harvest time but now has been abandoned and left to go derelict. This is a reference to, to the devastation that came uh, from the invasion in 701 BC by the Assyrians. The faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And so there's nothing left for Jerusalem except, it seems, a decent helping of God's righteous judgment. 
And so the words at the start of chapter 2, then Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And we're kind of left wondering, are we, are we still talking about the same place we were talking about? Well, yes and no. To understand the imagery that's working here, we've got to remember that in Isaiah's day, mountains and hills were seen as places of worship. That's because being you know, physically higher, closer to the sky, people believed that if you go up on the mountain, you're closer to your gods. So they would go up on mountains and hills uh, to worship. But one day, Isaiah's true God, the God of the Bible, is going to be vindicated and elevated far above all other supposed false gods. And it'll occur in such an undeniable way that the whole world is going to recognize it. From every nation will come to worship the Lord, to hear from his word, and to walk in his way. And the Lord will be present in the world as its ruling king, and all conflict and international tension will cease. People will take their uh, their weapons and turn them into gardening tools. It's good news for a people living uh, under the fear of invasion and annihilation. But notice here how this vision stands in such opposition to the beliefs in our own world about world peace and what will achieve world peace. It's not about having a bigger army or a, a bigger nuclear arsenal than the next guy. It's not about peace accords and ceasefires and diplomacy. It's not about pluralistic universal accommodation and celebration of as many different faiths and worldviews and ideologies. The Bible is actually telling us here, friends, that world peace will only happen when the world recognizes that the Lord is king and that his word is truth and that walking in his ways is the only way to live. Now, there's a thought. Now, the vision, as we've read in verse 1, is about Judah and also, or really about the geographical features of the land either. The city and the temple mountain envisioned here, they only have value as the place where God is with his people and the place where the word of God goes out to the world. And so it starts here in Jerusalem, but it quickly outgrows the temple mounts. I think this is important to say because Christians can sometimes get a little overexcited about the plain Jerusalem in God's plan today. You know, we Jerusalem today restored to something resembling the Jerusalem of Solomon, perhaps. But I don't think that's the point at all. And I think it's a vision which is actually far too small to take in what God really has in mind. In Isaiah's prophecy, the physical city of Jerusalem, that point on the map where the vision is located... It's just the vantage point, the place where Isaiah gets to stand and look out on the whole of human history. It's the lookout from where I calls us as well to look and see the incredibly glorious things that God is going to accomplish. 
And I think this is just as well, because though Isaiah calls his Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, that's precisely what they're not doing. It's because they've got a really, really big problem for this morning. Um, We already know God's people have a problem. We read about it in chapter 1. We read about how they've failed uh, socially and politically and religiously to honor God. Uh, But the big problem is actually a problem of the heart, and it's a problem that rises above all others, and it's how they have made mankind, humanity, the center of their universe, gone to the margins. That's why they still go to the temple and make sacrifices and pray. But it's all about them. Chapter 1 called their worship vain. God is kind of just on the periphery of their lives. And so we see the heart behind their sin. And this is why, uh, if you can see chapter 2 and 3 in front of you there, there's an incredible contrast. At the beginning of chapter 2, we had this vision of all people everywhere going up to, to God's mountain to hear God's word and meet him and learn from him and walk in his ways. But instead, we find that God's people are actually going to the surrounding nations and walking in their ways and hearing from their words and walking in their lights. So chapter 2, verse 6. You have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. So it's like they're, you know, and it's not just, you know, high-fiving foreign people. It's actually doing business deals and making alliances with people that God said you should have nothing to do with. And so they're taking their cues from the world instead of from God. They're taking their cue from the societies and the cultures around them. And what's the result? Well, they're full of money. This, uh, 2 verse 7, they're full of power and idols, verse 8, which it says are cheap imitations of the one true God that they've made with their own hands. I find the problem summarized, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> we find the problem summarized in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2 where it talks about Uh, human pride and arrogance, the lofty pride of men. And then again in verse 22 at the end of chapter 2, where Judah is told in very clear words, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? That's God's word to them. Stop regarding man. See, it's this arrogant and prideful elevation of humanity above God. It's the deification of humanity. But it gets worse because God's people don't get it. In judgment, the Lord is going to take away their leaders and their rulers. Um, Verse 3, for these are the people who've utterly failed to lead God's people in righteousness and justice. But the penny still doesn't drop. So if you flip over to chapter 3, verse 6. We've got this this miserable picture of a city in ruins and all the leaders and the nobles and the, the, the commanders of the army, they've been carried off as prisoners or killed. And after God has finished with the city and reduced it to ashes, the survivors who are clambering over the rocks and stones will beg anyone who still has clothes to rule over them in a pathetic sort of rubble kingdom. 
So they think that a man is going to save them somehow. Uh, towards the end of, the, of chapter 3 from verse 16, we see there the women of Judah becoming a target for God's judgment. And, you know, it might seem, this section might seem a little harsh to our ears today, but it really boils down to the same thing, this, this worship of humanity. You see, the women of Judah, presumably the middle and upper classes, have enabled and encouraged the sin of the men in their lives because they want to be the it girls of Jerusalem. So if it, was, if it was 2021, the driving force in their lives would be how they look to the rest of the world on Instagram. It's because they want the clothes and the jewelry and the accessories and the perfumes and the beauty treatments that scream, look at me. And they've encouraged the men in their lives to, verse 15, take the spoil of the poor into their houses to fund it. They're accessories to the crime and guilty all the same. Now, it's not something we often talk about, but we've got to talk about these things if they're in God's word. And so, especially to the women who are married this morning or preparing for marriage, there's a serious warning here. And the warning is about the danger of encouraging your husband to compromise his relationship with the Lord and his godliness because of the things you want, your desires and your aspirations. That was the failure of the woman in Isaiah's day. And so let me say that if the you that you want to present to the world through the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the house you live in, the things you have, means that you encourage your husband to be a bit loose on the tax return or to avoid being charitable or generous to people in need or to work longer and longer hours that he's never at home leading your family to to Christ, well, then I think there needs to be a bit of a reckoning. Maybe you need to heed Isaiah's warning. Do your wants and aspirations encourage or compromise your husband's godliness? Because that was a huge problem in Judah, and it's something that invited God's judgment. Now, let's just say Isaiah is an equal opportunity prophet. He's not being sexist, singling out the girls. The men who cheat and oppress and chase money are as responsible as the women for their own sin. And really, what we see here is a mirror image of the beginning of the chapter where the women are as bad as everyone else when it comes to elevating people above God. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so, just like the people in the ruined city who are looking for the last guy with clothes who can be a king over them, in 4 verse 1, the women will vainly fight, many women will vainly fight over the few men who haven't been Uh, you know, chopped to pieces by a sword. He weren't killed in battle. They will fight for a husband in an attempt to regain some shred of humanity and dignity. Again, as if a man could save them. And at its heart, this is all about the worship of humanity, a faith in mankind rather than the Lord. And let's be clear, men and women are equally prone to this. Worship, as we've said before, is about where we put our faith, where we trust, where we find our worth and our purpose as people, and where we give credit for everything. And the people of God have humanity rather than the Lord as the object of their worship. And so the people of Judah have this great big problem of elevating humanity and human ideals 
in the place of the Lord. It, it actually sounds a bit like 2021, doesn't it? It's not much difference between the 8th century BC and now. You know, right and wrong are defined by the extent to which human beings want to express themselves. Every word and image of celebrities and influences are hung on to tell us how we should dress and how we should eat and how we should think and how we should live. It's a situation where I pour myself into presenting the most perfectly curated version of me to the world. It's a place where I've got to do more and more. I've got to do in order to have any worth and value as a human being. I've got to do more than the next guy for my worth and value. And I've got to be more than the next girl to have worth and value. And you know, it's a place where the path to freedom is learning to be true to myself and learning to forgive myself as though I was God. I think that was as true in 8th century BC as it is today. And so I think if we'd hop in a time machine and go back 700 years before Jesus, we'd find the culture strange, but we'd find the heart attitudes just the same. Where humanity is sitting on God's throne. But the problem gets worse. And the problem gets worse because the Lord, the people who they've, the the one who the people have set themselves against, and whose glorious presence among them they have defied, chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord won't tolerate this kind of behavior in the world. Now, I don't think the people of Isaiah's day really realize this at this point, because this day the least destroying everything in its path, but, you know, life's all right. They don't realize the precarious situation they're in, and so Isaiah reminds them that this can't happen forever. The Lord has a day And so as you scan down the rest of chapter 2 and 3, you'll find this repeated phrase about the day of the Lord when all of this will be reckoned with. When the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Chapter 2, 11 and 12. When the haughtiness of men shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. 2.17. And we're told in 2.20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of gold which they've made for themselves, which they've made for themselves to worship. And they will, enter, and they will cast them to the moles and the bats to enter the cave, caverns of the rocks and the cliffs of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And again in 3.18, in that section uh, directed towards the women of Judah, In that day, the Lord will take away all these things they've been trusting in and all these things they've aspired to. There's two things Isaiah wants us to know about the day of the Lord. The first thing is that on that day, human pride and arrogance will be exposed for what it is. Wickedness and foolishness. To think that we are in charge of the universe. To think that we get to define the limits of the universe and what constitutes morality and meaning. It'll be exposed on that day. And everyone will know. That's why, you know, 
Isaiah's prophecy here is about them taking the idols they've made and they want to throw them as far away from themselves as they can. They don't want to be caught red-handed with this fake religion that they've made up. And secondly, on that day, the Lord will be revealed for who he is, the terrifying, majestic, sovereign God. It'll be undeniable that the only person who gets to occupy that throne is God. And so one Bible commentator writes, the God from whom their self-worship has alienated them will appear and there'll be no more cause to glory in human greatness than there would be to praise a flashlight in the middle of the day. Now across chapters 2 and 3, we actually see, uh, we see two days of the Lord in view. The first is in chapter 2 where we see the day of the Lord which brings a universal judgment on human sin. 2.17, when the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted. But then as we move into chapter 3, we find the Lord has another day for his people in Judah and Jerusalem. When... God will judge their pride and arrogance and faith in humanity. And he will remove Jerusalem, or he, will, he will reduce Jerusalem to a heap of ruins and remove their leaders, remove their defenders, remove their food and their water. And this is looking ahead to when God will judge his people by taking them into exile in Babylon, almost 150 years after Isaiah was preaching. When that happened, Jerusalem was destroyed. Its leaders were taken prisoner. Their mighty men were killed in battle. And nothing but the women and children of the lowest orders of society were left to scramble over the rubble and make a new life for themselves. And that was meant to be a mere preview of the great day of the Lord when he will finally and decisively judge everything that is proud and lofty, that all, all that is raised up, and when he alone will be exalted. Friends, I think we've got to realize that human pride and arrogance and the, the deification of humanity is really at the heart of our deepest sins and our deepest offense against the Lord. I think it's worth thinking for a moment about where in our lives we might be looking to people instead of God to give us our worth and value and purpose. It might not be as overt as we read in Isaiah this morning, but where are we looking to human standards instead of God's standards? Where, where are we going with the flow and shaping our ethics and our aspirations by what we see around us rather than what we see in God's word? Where do we take our cues for how we speak or how we dress or what we aspire to or what we want for ourselves, the things we want for ourselves or how we do our jobs? Is it coming from humanity or from the Lord? Where are we giving people the credit which actually belongs to the Lord? You know, speaking from experience, I find the person who most often gets the credit in my life when things are going well is me, not God. I find it all too easy to pat myself on the back when things are going well. But 
But where else are we looking for people, looking to people, instead of God for our worth and value? Is it a, the relationship we have with a husband or a wife, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a mother, or a father, or a son, or a daughter, or a friendship that we're looking to to define us, rather than looking to the Lord to define us? We need to be warned. Isaiah 2.17, the haughtiness of men shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Friends, I I think all of us probably have some repenting to do before that day. Now, as we get into chapter 4, verse 2, the final section, it begins with words that we've learned to associate through this chapter with God's terror and judgment. Verse 2 begins, in that day. But then we get something completely different. Have a look with me there at verse 2 of chapter 4. says, in that day, when God will judge all the pride and arrogance of humanity, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now, we've got to see how this section suddenly shifts our vantage points so that the, the, the day of Jerusalem's judgment, the day of the Lord, it's kind of flattened, so it all looks like the same day. It's hard to tease out exactly which is which here. But the point is the same, because though the Lord will cast down the pride of humanity, and though his people will be almost destroyed, there is still hope. And that hope comes from just a branch of that diseased-ridden tree, which is Israel, which the Lord has rejected. A branch, just a branch which will be beautiful and glorious. And it will be beautiful and glorious because it is the Lord's branch. And all credit will go to him for what he does through that branch beyond judgment. There will be cleansing from sin in that day. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Those who remain shall be called holy. They'll be washed. And there'll be refuge and safety for God's people. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, and there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter. The language is symbolic, but it's very real, it's very vivid. And the language here is actually from the Exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery. Remember, as they went through the desert, they had God going before them as a cloud by day, and a flaming, same um, image that's, that's happening here. And so what all this tells us is that that ultimately all these big obstacles 
amongst God's people, for the Lord bringing about his great plan, his big plan for his people. It'll be overcome, not by the, the trunk of the main tree, that's got massive issues, it needs to be cut down, but by a little branch, the branch of the Lord. And when that happens, as the Bible story progresses, and God whittles away the unworthy from among his people, first with the, the splitting of the kingdom in two, then with the northern southern kingdom being taken into exile, till eventually a faithful remnant is all that's left. And even the faithful remnant themselves can't achieve in mind for his people. And then a little baby is born in, in Bethlehem, and his name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. The next few chapters in the next few weeks to the end of chapter 12, but Jesus Christ becomes the one who stands as that branch, that last little green shoot that's holding out against all the sin and decay and disease of God's people. And he stands not just in the place of sinners, but in the place of God's do what they could never do, being God's servant to fulfill his plan of salvation for the world. Jesus is actually the perfect Israel. He's the Lord. And so if, if you imagine that actually the whole of biblical history is a bit like an hourglass, where we start with the big people of God under, under Abraham, and it kind of gets narrow, 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 until it all centers on one person, on the Lord Jesus Christ, because only he is the perfect man, because he is also the Son of God. And then it, from that point on, you know, from basically from the cross, it branches out again into this massive vision of God's salvation for the whole world. It's kind of what we see at the beginning of chapter 2. And so Jesus is actually the place where God dwells among his people. Jesus is actually the place where God's word goes out to the world and where we meet God and where we walk in his light. And in him, the faithful remnant, yes, they are a faithful remnant, but In him, the faithful remnant will have their sins washed away and will be rescued and kept safe forever by the Lord. You know, I think this is the wonderful thing about the book of Isaiah. He doesn't pull any punches about human sin, about the things that offend God, even the things we kind of just, you know, fall into and take for granted. But in every place where the Lord's righteous justice is in view, His mercy is right there as well. And so I encourage you, as you read through Isaiah with us this term, if you find that the judgment is just getting so heavy, sit in that for a while, but keep reading. Because there'll always be the spark of of God's mercy. And as we move through the book, actually, each proclamation of God's mercy, you'll find it turns up the volume on the hope of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, the Lord will bring about this glorious vision of worldwide worship as people are brought into his people, washed and cleaned. But where we stand on that day depends, as it did for Isaiah's hearers, on where our faith is. Is it in ourselves or is it in the glorious branch of the Lord? Well, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, it's only right that we exalt you this morning as the only holy and righteous God. 